As an interior design studio expands into a full-blown lifestyle brand, the lines can blur when it comes to corporate structure. Managing who does what in each department can prove complicated, especially with a growing client roster. After a decade at the top, Amber Lewis walks us through her studio structure, repeat book deals, product licensing, and what comes next. Hello, Amber, and welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. I'm so happy I was able to finally make this happen. I'm so excited to be here. I know everyone listening is so excited we were able to make this happen. I love it. It's a highly anticipated show, and I appreciate you closing out season two of the Interior Collective. So, congrats on that for you, too. That is such an achievement. I really love that you've been able to keep through it. I feel like a lot of people started podcasts and then they were kind of like, so podcasts. (laughs) I feel like I let everybody do their trial and error, and then I waited, and five years later, I decided a podcast was a good idea. So, just bring it around at the end, but it's been a really fun project. It's honestly my favorite part of my job. So I, it's, it's nice to bring a little bit of design camp to everybody who can't make it and yeah. kind of dig in a little deeper. So to those of you who were at design camp with Amber, I guess that was a year and a half ago already. Yeah, yeah. Wow. You'll hear some questions. I'm excited to see if her answers have changed at all because okay. a year and a half in business, I know, especially in Amber's life is a long time. And yes. so a lot has shifted. So let's go ahead and dig right in. For okay, those listening, give us a little background information about the structure of your business in the studio and the shop, because are they two separate entities entirely, or do they fall under the same umbrella? So I have probably not a completely unique situation, but I'll just kind of give you the the broad overview of how it works for me. So I, we have the retail stores. So we have e-commerce, we have four physical locations slated to open probably two, hopefully three over the next two years. So we're very like actual physical location retail heavy. And then we have our e-commerce site. That is a separate business on a day-to-day for sure. I still run all the creative. I still do all the designs. I'm still on every single photo shoot, but I'm sort of less in the weeds with that business as I used to be just because it's such a beast on its own. I mean, I think there's over a hundred employees over there. And, you know, there's so many people over there. And then I have my design studio and that is, that is like my baby, right? Those are my, my team has been with me for a really long time. The majority, like my two lead project designers have been with me five plus years and they kind of run the show over there. So we've really kind of gotten to a place where they are presenting me. I'm going to them with concepts, ideas. This is how I want this project to look. And they're sort of taking it from there. And then we're sort of designing it together, but they're really managing that project from, you know, soup to nuts, which is incredible. I trust them implicitly to do that. And then the third and fourth portion of the business really is the licensing and then the author component. So the licensing has really (laughs) taken such a front seat to so much because it's so time consuming, not, not in the sense that like I'm sitting and designing so much, but the amount of like traveling and, you know, just like things I have to do for all the shows and everything else for the licensing deals is, is a lot. 
And then obviously writing a book, which is a whole other beast. I just literally turned in my manuscript for my book too. We are announcing the book name and cover, I think in the next, like next week, actually. So I know. Exciting. Well, by the time this airs, that should be out there. So I'll make sure to include the title <laughs> and the book cover in the show notes for everybody who's okay. curious. Amazing. Amber, totally feel free to ignore this question, but yeah. everyone listening, you explained four real key pillars to the business. Can you yeah. share which of those pillars is the most revenue generating for you? So it's sort of like apples to oranges because I think really it's hard for me to say. You know, when you have such a massive operation as what shop has become, it's like, sure, it has the most revenue, but is it the most profitable? Not necessarily. Right. So it's, it's like, that is kind of a big part of it that, um, yes, that's the giant sort of beast that said, it's not necessarily always the, the most revenue generating the design business is profitable and great. And then the licensing is also quite profitable. And I've had a great experience with it. I've had really good luck with the partners I've chosen to work with. So it's been a really easy, awesome structure to have because it's been so easy to have this relationship with them. Yeah. But yeah, that's, that's kind of, and then the books actually, ironically, you know, it's no one's retiring on it, but it's actually done really well. I mean, it's literally been a bestseller since it's come out, which is crazy. And made, sorry, my first one made for living. It hasn't really seemed to die down. So I'm really fortunate for that longevity. Well, it's just <laughs> such a good book. I reference it Thank over you. and over and over again. It's Thank just you. such a like tactile, actionable, usable design book and obviously incredibly beautiful to look at. So I Thank you so much. T- totally get why it's at the top of the charts all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So you mentioned e-commerce has over like 100 employees now. How many employees yeah. do you have across the umbrella of Amber Lewis? I think the whole Gosh, the whole umbrella of everybody, I don't know, one something. I don't actually really don't know. So I don't want to say, but we're always hiring and we're always expanding. You know, with expansion comes great struggle and, and issues and pain. And you kind of get into a new world of people management that you have to hire HR and you have to have a whole other operation to just be people managers, which is not necessarily my strong suit or my, my partner's strong suit. We're just kind of like, okay, we're running these huge businesses. We don't really know what to do. So we're really in the hiring amazing people to take over <laughs> that stuff. But we are on my design side. It's very lean. Um, office manager, obviously HR accounting. And then my designers, there's only eight of us. So we're not big at all. We're lean and mean. Every time you tell me that, Amber, my jaw just drops to the floor. That's so incredible. Does that design team do the designs for your product licensing too? Or is there a different team that does that? So you're looking at her for product licensing. As it stands right now, I don't have a designer for product. We are currently filling that position, which I'm extremely excited about because I'm not kidding when I say like it's me and 
essentially Kat, who's actually the VP of my brand, who's not a designer. Her and I are kind of pulling it together with this cuckoo. So that's changing because there's only so much to go around. And as my partnerships grow, I need actually more support in that area for sure. Certainly, But no, we're really lean and meaty. And part of the reason why I don't have a bigger design team, just to speak to that, is I'm very particular because it is such a family and we're so involved and I'm so involved, but also so I give everybody so much leeway that you really have to have some talent. And I think that I don't just hire people to be a warm body. I really want people to have career and feel really good about what they're doing every day and have ownership in projects. So experience is a big one. And, you know, lo and behold, there's not a lot of completely experienced designers out there who are currently looking for jobs. So if you're listening and you need a job and you are the most talented person, call me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> We're always I, definitely, the team. I definitely can see that there's a bit of a void because so many designers are opening their own firms. And to find a designer yes. that really wants to be a designer under a creative director elsewhere, I can see that that is tricky. So it sounds like if you have been wanting to work for Amber, this is your time (laughs) to apply. Amber, you had touched on a little bit before about how you structure your design team and their responsibilities. I'd really, really love if we could go into a little bit of detail with that. Like most specifically, do you said that you have eight designers, do they all have project managers under that? Do they have procurement teams? Like, how does that break down? Because just the caliber of your work and honestly, the quantity of your work is vast. Yeah. So we, you know, to speak to basically what you just talked about, I currently have, what do we have? So it's, it's Brianna and Morgan. And both of them are now like five. Morgan's been with me, I think, seven years. Sorry, Mo, if you're if it's seven years and I forgot. But it's basically a long time. And so they have grown with me from coming in seriously as junior designers and assistant level to now running their own show. And underneath them, so they're lead project designers. They basically are client-facing, they're construction management, They're doing almost all of it. They're also sourcing and selecting. And then underneath them, they have a very CAD heavy, very like technical designer, whether or not it's junior or project designer, and then another project designer. We we tend to like to have four on each team, someone who's more of like procurement, invoicing, all of that stuff, CAD heavy project designer, and then a lead project designer. Those lead project designers, do they all have excellent CAD skills and technical skills or do you let them do more concept and then those junior level designers with those technical skills fill in? So they have to have it all, right? So Brie and Morgan specifically can do all of the things incredibly well. They wear so many hats and they do it with ease And then below them, they just now, it's funny, when they first started, they were sort of just working under me. It was just like us and we were doing stuff. And now that they're running their own team, they have to be very careful about who they hire as well to support them. So I like the trickle down method. I like to make sure sure I oversee, edit, whatever, but I really give them so much autonomy in the company. You said everybody's starting their own company and they're all wanting to be designers. There's perks. And then there's really a lot of downfalls to that. You know, when you come to work for someone like me, you're, you're, you're working, 
you're not waiting. You have a career, you have a 401k, you have health insurance, and you have a sure thing. When you're a designer on your own, sure, I fully, you know, in hope that you could at least try it and decide if it's for you, if that's your path. But there's a lot of curveballs there. It's the things that nobody talks about, the overhead, the people management, the client management. I mean, clients can go crazy and then you no longer, it's no longer your problem or someone else's problem. It's your problem. And that can be a very expensive problem to have sometimes. Totally. It's the so, stuff that keeps you up at night when you are the business yeah. owner and the designer that working totally. under a creative director or another studio, you can remove so much of that stress that us as yeah. business owners are feeling 24 hours a day. A hundred percent because you're really just going to work and doing your job and you're doing more like of the fun part, to be honest, you don't have to do all the shitty parts like I do, which is just, you know, again, the people management is the biggest one, the biggest one. So when you started to really grow Amber Interiors and needed to bring on help, who was your first hire and what did they do? My first hire, I just sort of like through trial and error realized, oh, I really need someone who's going to fill in where I lack. I do not know CAD. I do not know a lot of those technical programs. I've taught myself Photoshop and InDesign and all that. But in the very beginning, that was the only skill that I brought to the table. So I was really looking for someone who was going to come in who not only had a great eye, but was able to do the CAD work that I couldn't do. I tell the story that my Mike and I, we bought our first house. We kind of DIY the entire thing because we didn't have any money. And in that DIY process, I started blogging about what I was doing. It kind of got attention and then, you know, got published. And I got my first client from that, whatever. And the rest is history. But when I sold, we sold that house because I wanted to start the business. And, and I've mentioned before, I've never taken a dime. So everything has been self-funded, this entire thing. So we took that, whatever profit we had made from the sale of our house. And I put enough aside to hire a full-time employee for one year and I, and then pay myself, whatever that was. It was basically just paying for like bills and preschool at that time, because that was it. And rent because we couldn't buy another house and whatever. So I put in all my financials into just hiring a one employee. And then she became kind of my right hand man. And eventually she was with me for a couple, you know, five years, something like that. And she ended up starting her own, moving to another state and starting her own company. And I'm really proud of her for that. But yeah, that was my first hire. And then from there, I just hired another designer and another CAD person and then an accountant, a really good, like someone who was an office manager who could also help with like some of the bookkeeping stuff. And then I branched out to the social media stuff now too. In hindsight, knowing what you know now, and especially to those listening who, you know, they've been in business three to five years, probably, especially after this wild season of COVID and just the boom in the business. Yeah. Looking back, was that the right role that you needed at first? Or would you recommend hiring that accountant first or another role? I learned a lot of lesson with the systems aspect of it. So when I first started, and I I try to give this piece of advice, imagine that you're going to be as big as you think you are from the day you start. Because truly, when you start rolling, and when things start happening for you, it's hard to go back and recalibrate your systems to adjust to 
a bigger operation. When I first started, I was using just some really like, I don't even know what it was. It wasn't even QuickBooks or anything. It was something super small, an invoicing um, app or whatever, programs, software. And it was fine in the very beginning when you had a proposal that had, you know, 60 things on it and you were just billing for a flat fee, fine. But now when we have proposals that have 750 things on it, that system, obviously, we outgrew that. And we tried a lot of, we kissed a lot of frogs before we got to a good system. So I say start where you assume you're going to be. So I needed that CAD person because when we were doing these projects, I needed to be able to translate technically what I wanted. It wasn't good enough for me to just hand draw something and say, do this. I wanted it to technically be spelled out so I could go to the architect and the contractor and tell them exactly what I wanted instead of just kind of winging it. So that I would never change. I thought that was a really important hire for me, but I would have hired a better, more equipped accountant and bookkeeping team kind of straight on or someone who had a little bit more experience in the system. Yeah, for sure. But, but, but money, I didn't have money. So I had to figure it out so much on my Pick own. Pick and choose for sure. Mm-hmm. That brings me to a perfect segue point. Thank you. Amber. <laughs> when uh, I'm a pro, I guess. Yeah. You know? When starting out, did you have big goals like having a shop and a book and licensing deals, or did that organically happen? Because as you're saying, you know, y'all sold your house to invest in the business, like that feels like you've always had those big goals. And going from furnishing a project to bringing on someone with technical CAD skills, that's because you know you want to do full architectural design too. So what did Amber's big ultimate Grand Supreme dreams look like back in the day? I wish it was that black and white. So, so much of my behaviors as a business owner have been circumstantial. So when I say I sold my house and put so much into the business, that was there was a lot of stuff happening behind the scenes, which is why we had to sell the house. So I became overnight potentially the sole breadwinner in my family. So I all of a sudden was like, oh shoot, we're gonna be fucked if I don't. Sorry, am I allowed to you cuss on cuss, the podcast? It's fine. <laughs> okay, whatever. Yeah, we're gonna be fucked if I don't put this money into something. And I think that I'm currently kind of having clients or potential opportunities come my way. That's the only thing we have on our plate. We need to make some dramatic decisions right now. So did I have a giant plan in place? No, but I was circumstantially like this, what was on my plate, I had to kind of survive and figure out the next step. And I kind of bet on myself that even if I have X, Y, and Z client or one more client this year, we'll survive another year. So it wasn't this big grandiose plan. And when I brought on a CAD person, it was because I couldn't do it. And the only way that I was going to be able to like do a good job on that one opportunity I had to get another job was to do it right and get that reputation going. So what did, you know, you asked, do I have all these stores and all this stuff? No, not really. It's sort of organic. It truly organically came out of circumstances and things that were brought to me. And I realized, oh, I got this. And how about we do this risky thing, like opening a store (laughs) or 
e-com or whatever, you know? So I'm interested. I feel like the best pivots in life always happen with a force of hand. And in that situation, that's what happened to you. When you brought that CAD person on, did you bring them on full time right away or did it start contract or what was that? I think it was hourly at first. And then she was just, you know, then I think she went to salary and yeah, she actually went to a salaried position. And yeah, I think like back end, I don't know, I actually don't remember this part. So I'm kind of blacking out, but I must have started like payroll or something. But yeah. So you are definitely a buy your gut kind of girl. And there isn't a lot of grand plans always laid out in front of you. And it's about what feels right and how it feels right for your life, for your team, for your family. Has there at any point been a time that you made a pivot from this is what feels good to I am going to sit down and put together a plan? Yeah. Right Mm -hmm. now, currently, I'm in this situation right now. I'm really trying to do things that feel, you know, uh, not to bring it kind of back to, well, I'm going to bring it actually personal. So reality is, is I have to be really cautious about stress. I, I think I've talked about it. Everybody, maybe everybody knows if you don't know, I was diagnosed with MS in March of 2020 when the world shut down. And ever since then, I've had a real like change of perspective, a dose of reality that what can I do and what can't I do? So I'm a lot more, I have a lot more to lose now. I have a lot more people to take care of and support now. So I can't be as flippant. I have to do things a lot more strategic and a lot smarter than I was before. I could operate on my gut still, but I have to do it with a lot more intention. So Currently, that's kind of where I am. I'm trying to make sure that I make the right move for longevity as opposed to, you know, being lucrative. I kind of feel like that's a really beautiful position to be in. And I'm super grateful that I can make those decisions based on what makes me happy versus what's going to line the pockets. I don't want to do anything that's going to be stressful. I don't want to partner with people that are going to be hard to work with, clients and licensed partners alike. So yes, now it's a lot more calculated. It has to Mm -hmm. be. I don't have the, you know, if there was just me, myself and I, sure, I could just go, ah, whatever, screw it. But I I can't do that. There's too many people to take care of. (laughs) So we can totally edit this out, Amber. But I feel like on a very different scale, this is a really relatable crossroads for people. We've had a booming industry for the last few years in particular, and a lot of people who were in the infancy of their business right before COVID or started during COVID, things are starting to feel a little bit of a shift as, you know, there's this constant talk of recession that I feel like is going to force us into recession, whether we were or not. Right. You know, so that, Stop talking yes, about exactly. it. Yes, yeah. exactly. And so I'm curious, as, as you are getting into a, a headspace where you're making a plan and being more strategic. Can I ask, are you talking to outside consultants on that? Is it literally just carving out time that you can be alone, you, Amber, thinking about the strategy? Or I think a lot of people get caught up and it's like, how do I make this pivot? And who is it that I talk to to make the right pivot? Yeah, I don't have a ton of outside advisors. That said, I have great people I trust. So I now trust my attorney implicitly 
I have a couple of them and that he's like my favorite because he's very gut check. No, you're worth more than this. Don't do anything, blah, blah, blah. We have a chief financial officer who works with us. We have a controller who works with us for like the big picture stuff. We do these long range plans. Now financially, we're able to look at it in a very clean picture of what to predict now and the variables of this, I'm not even going to say the word of potentially a softening of the, you know, market, if you will, or some, whatever we want to say, you know, we're, we have to roll with the punches. We've been here before though. And I fully believe that, you know, we have to keep going forward. We can't just assume the world's going to crash all the time because what would we do? We'd always be scared of the next opportunity. I'm a full believer that you won't know until you try the best case scenario and the worst case scenario. And typically when I go into these opportunities, I ask myself, if it wasn't on the table, would I survive? And if the answer is not yes, then I can risk it, right? Like I, I have to, did I say that right? The answer is not yes, whatever. I like to know if it wasn't there, will I survive? And if the answer is yes, then we're good. I don't need to take it. So it becomes less of a taking something for necessity and more of taking it for, because it's going to create the best opportunity and the best outcome. That said, there is some strategy now with, with how and what we do take on because we do have so many people to take yeah, care of. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. I want to get into technical questions and I know that okay. this is one that you have other people who do these things. So we can skip over yeah. the ones you don't know the answers to. So software yeah. is a continuously challenging topic for our listeners. It feels like everyone yeah. has to use 10 different programs to run their business. What softwares yep. are tried and true at Amber Interiors? We have been operating with studio webware for years now. We, the account, you know, the, forward-facing side, it's easy, whatever. It's really not the most accounting intuitive when you get to a scale of our size. So we've brought on NetSuite. We won't know about, you know, we're like the design team hasn't been introduced to the NetSuite yet. That's going to be like a very long integrative process, but in the back end, that's being sorted. It makes sense for us just because we carry so much inventory it's hard for me because I am purchasing so much from my own retail locations that that accounting gets super dicey. So we're switching to NetSuite, but studio webware for any all intensive purposes have been really great. And correct me if I'm wrong. Studio webware rebranded to studio designer. Is that the same company? Mm, there we go. One of the things I okay, don't know. So, yes. I will make sure to link the <laughs> correct one in the show notes for you. But that's interesting. I think it's studio designer. That is so interesting that you have made the jump over to NetSuite because on Bria Hamill's episode, she was saying same thing because they have e-commerce, they have inventory that they've had to make that. She had mentioned that it's a pretty expensive investment to make that jump. And it so is. it's really when you have a large format e-commerce or even brick and mortar option to really look into. But that's great to hear that that is something that multiple designers who have multiple yeah. revenue streams like that have moved over towards. Yeah. And I have separate, you know, just to kind of clarify too, the majority of all of those businesses are separate 
companies. They're all under the umbrella of one corporation, but they're separate, you know, companies. So they'll each like for the licensing, it doesn't need to be super net suited out. I think we're just QuickBooks because I'm not really expensing a lot of stuff out of there. Really just myself. Totally. (laughs) Not even. Um, For design presentations, like the presentation itself and like approvals, do you have a software for that? Or is it just like old school? Here's a printed copy. I need a signature. Do you get signatures? (laughs) What does that look like? We we do presentations on Photoshop Uh and design right now. So we present them in a format. It's just a template that we use. We kind of go room to room, option to option, whatever that is. We're in a place in our career where we kind of like to limit our options. We hope that we have a a big enough conversation with clients at the forefront that we're not missing Mm -hmm. the mark. We adjust, obviously, but we'll typically do mood boards that sort of show for us and for them a generalized idea of what we chose, what the items are going to look like fabrics we chose, etc. But yeah, it's not a lot of crazy stuff anymore. One of the first impressions prospective clients have of your brand is your website. If you don't have a strong online presence to show off your work, though, you're losing out on potential clients. IDECO Studio offers a selection of limited edition website templates designed specifically for interior designers just like you. If you're looking for a more hands-off experience, you can add on implementation and professional copywriting, and we'll have your new website up and running within a few short weeks. Visit IDECO.studio to choose your favorite before it sells out. Are you at yeah. every design presentation or is that where your lead designers go? No. So that's the one thing I have yet to mm-hmm. relinquish control of. There was one instance recently where I was not involved in an out-of-state project to do tile and plumbing. And I that Brianna or Morgan can take over some of those that are not necessarily, like mm-hmm. I've picked it all but I'm not necessarily able to be on the actual call and clients are actually pretty cool with it. Unless they specifically say, we don't want to work with anybody but Amber. Normally my answer is like, well, that's not possible unless you want to just like take over all the other things that require my attention. You're not going to be able to do that. So you have to trust that I'm making the right choice and pairing you with the right designer who's going to Right. You're like, trust me, you want this person doing this, not me. (laughs) Yes. Yes. A hundred percent. And I, yeah, you don't want me answering the email about where (laughs) your stuff is. I promise you, or sending you the proposal of where things are. My, and, but yeah, I'm involved in all of the designs still a hundred percent and design presentation. You're still. still the one literally presenting to the client. Yep. Yep. And I mean, I'll be with my team so that they can make sure to back me up. Because of course, if you have 20 some odd projects, I'm not always knowing the nuances of everybody's job. (laughs) Like if something literally changed that morning, and I didn't know, like Morgan will be like, actually, it's different now. We're going with this is the new whatever. And so I'll recalibrate. But that might be my super power is the ability to remember what's going on in the houses to a bizarre degree. Like I remember weird things and can shoot from the hip with that stuff without really prepping anymore. You mentioned just now 20 some odd projects. Is that like a pretty standard number that the design studio is carrying at once? Well, right now, actually, I think we have less. So I think right now, the you know, we're doing Mm -hmm. a lot of ground up builds, which take years. We're not doing a lot of decor. 
which I wish we were, to be honest. I kind of love doing the decor because it's Mm -hmm. so straightforward. Give me an amazing shell. I don't need it to be my design shell. But no, we're designing, I think, 80% of our stuff right now Mm -hmm. is completely ground up builds. But yeah, I think we have like 16 or 17 at the moment with like maybe two or three. And that's like a comfy zone for that size team. I mean, for me, fine. My, I'm sure the team will want to punch me when I tell them. Like, anytime I'm like, we're doing this new thing. <laughs> okay, how? I don't know. We'll figure it out. Come so, on. I'm asking you this because I know you've tried every trick in the book. I want to talk pricing. Yeah. Previously, I have been yeah. 100% pro hourly pricing only. But as I've been in business a bit longer... And I've understood the nuances of different markets, et cetera. The concept of flat rate is becoming more and more enticing to me because I feel like there gets to be a point where you cannot charge more hourly, but you're better at your job and you're doing it faster. And in turn, you're punishing yourself and making less money. Do you have any thoughts on to hourly versus flat rate and how you sort of justify that mm-hmm. difference? Wow. I actually have never heard it put that way or spun that way. So that's really interesting the way you just put it. Cause you're, you're kind of right. I currently am. Mm-hmm. I've done all of it. I've done flat fee. I've done all the things we are at the moment mm-hmm. hourly mm-hmm. with a markup. So that is the general revenue stream for. And when you say with side. a markup, you mean Each. you're hourly and you mark up product. Okay. Yes. Yes, I mark a product. I charge an hourly. Project lead charges an hourly. Project designer charges an hourly. Junior charges an hourly. So they just basically mark all of the time that they're spent or the, that they're spending on the project. You know, utilization is pretty, mm-hmm. pretty high. I would say when we kind of break that down, you know, most of the designers are anywhere between. 80 to 100% utilization mm-hmm. of those hours per project. So we're really working hard. And, you know, my team, I've never met anyone who works harder. They just are nonstop. And, you know, anyway, but yeah, so we're hourly. So when you are sitting with the team and there's four of y'all all together, that hour meeting, each one of those people is logging that hour. And so it'll be whatever, $780 by the time everybody's added up or whatever. Yeah. Yes. And I try not to do that too much. So the majority of the time when we do these check-in, I'm not, it doesn't really need to be Mm -hmm. the entire team. There'll be the check-in with me and the project lead and maybe a project designer, and then they'll kind of have Mm -hmm. their own check-ins, but mine are really typically just an hour here and an hour there. I try to go on site when and how I can, if, unless it's an out of state, obviously that's a lot harder to do. Or if we're like in the foundation stage of a project, I'm not going to check those out. But yeah, that's, that's the way that it is. We just charge for the hour. And I think my theory and my justification of that has been just because on the flat fee side, I was starting to realize that our time was being a little bit more abused as opposed to respected. So if I had allotted 500 hours for a project and it ended up taking 700 hours and 200 of those were just ridiculousness, then I I was starting to be like, okay, well, what the heck? Nobody wants to spend that money when they have to pay for it or spend that time when they have to pay for it. And I personally, on the opposite, was like, I liked that it streamlined the communication Mm -hmm. as well. It really 
got to the crux of it. Answer it, because if you ask us to go back one too many, three times, four times, however many times it is, you know, and I'm not ruthless. We're, we're very right. understanding. Sometimes, if it, especially if it's our issue, if it's something that we fucked up on, like I'm not charging the clients for sure. And that becomes my issue. But if we're being asked to do, you know, things that are just taking up time for the sake of it, at least we're yeah. being compensated. So as a business owner and as a boss, and this is probably more of a personal question, but I'm like, yeah. how do you get your team to accurately log their time? I struggle with this so much because as a creative, you can't force that creativity in this box of time. And sometimes it comes to you when you're doing this thing instead of this thing. And how was that time actually accurately logged? Do you have any tips for that? So the designers definitely allot the time to be creative and they account for that Mm. in their hourlies. So if they have a day of sourcing, that's their creative time. Me, on the other hand, I am working 24 hours a day. Mine is truly spent. I'm thinking about nine different projects and one fail swoop. So it's hard for me to say that I'm never not working So I only charge for the hours that I'm allotting to actually do the sourcing Mm -hmm. for the project. So I'm kind of creating for free. I know that that's whatever, but I sort of am creating for free. But when I'm actually like sitting down and sourcing the items to put in the project or the way that it's going to look or whatever that time is billable. Okay. So you mentioned that you've never taken money from anybody for your business. Can you? Well, that's not true. I took $5,000 for my grandma and paid her back with interest in six months. That was okay. 10 years ago. Thank so. you, grandma. We are all very <laughs> grateful to you. Since then. So yeah. since then, do yeah. you feel like there were any key points or key decisions that you made that really helped you grow the business and other business revenues without taking on investors? Because I know investors are knocking on your door every day, probably. And so what were like, what are those pivots where you're like, I'm not going to take this money and I'm going to make it work this way? Okay. So the irony of that sentence is that actually it's not the truth. We are not being solicited for investment often, which seems crazy And I think maybe I've done myself a disservice by being so vocally like, I don't want any money. I want to own everything autonomously. That said, as we grow, that door is definitely getting cracked and open and more and more. I mean, girl, I'm solid. I've got like a hundred bucks on it. Like I will go in right here. (laughs) I also have a hundred bucks on it. That's about all I have left after all of this. But no, I... Your original question, what was it? Sorry. I no, just it's great. Totally it's great. I love your sidetracks. So like, were there points yes. where that, that were key to be oh, like, right. this is how yeah, we yeah, scale yeah. the next step. And we have only funds based on our cash in cash out. Yeah. So that's been more that has happened on the shop side. That's more happened on the retail side of things. So we've just kind of dumped so much money into my beliefs, which is that I don't think retail should ever die. I feel really sad that we're such a culture of online activity. I am still so inspired by the actual walking into a store and touching and feeling and seeing things that I believe very much in that methodology. I don't want that to die. So it's a luckily the retail stores are profitable and they do well. 
every time I've had a gut to open a new one, those have been the biggest pivots that have all ended up actually working to our favor. When we opened up the Pacific Palisades location, that was all self-funded, obviously, but we had an amazing relationship found, very serendipitously found this. The guy who owns it is the sweetest man ever. And it was just perfect. Like, okay, that was the sign. And then I had a great experience doing that. So then Newport came next. And that was kind of the same thing. Very serendipitous. We got this amazing opportunity. Holy crap, I can't believe they're asking us to open a store here. Like, we still think we're small fries. That's maybe part of our, the humbleness of it all is that no matter what anybody says, we still operate kind of like a mom and pop boutique, even though we're not anymore. But our operations are as such. There is a a very much like I need to also be involved in all of those crazy decisions when we're opening up a new store or does it make sense to us and where do I want to be next? I mean, those aren't being made for us. We don't have someone who's like mapping that out. It's literally me and Mike and saying, okay, are we going to do another store here or should we do another store here? So those big changes have been pretty pivotal, at least for the retail side of it. In terms of the design side, I've always gone with gut with who to work with and what clients are going to be the most, you know, honestly, this sounds awful, but kind of hands off to a degree. There has to be trust. And if you hire clients that are going to dictate every single thing that happens and not necessarily allow you to do your job, it's going to look like their project, not yours. And if they're, if they're so confident that they can do the design, I encourage them because it is very labor intensive. There is so much project management, so much behind the scenes that people don't see. So I'm pretty outwardly open about, I want all of your input of what you want it to look like, but not micromanaged. And I, and I say that to save you money and I save that to save your stress and I save that to save your sanity and so that you're happy with the end result. Because you're coming to me because you liked what you saw. And let me tell you how that project went down. They just, what do you think? Let's make this happen. It's a tug and pull. You know, we're, we're having discussions. It's not like it's my way or the highway. But I also have value in what we're bringing to the table. And I make sure that the clients understand the value of that expertise or however many projects we have under our belt now. They're not. You know, on a previous episode, I was speaking with Renee Bush and she had the greatest quote. She said, when you're thinking of your ideal projects and your target clients, you don't want someone similar. You want someone who compliments. And her example was you, you probably don't want a detail oriented client because you are detail oriented and you do not want them also doing that. And I thought that was such a great mind shift to think that you're looking for someone who complements your strengths because they will trust you in your strengths and they will contribute where you need them to. And I really, really like that. Yeah. I also want to make sure that I don't hire a client that's just going to say, do exactly what you just did. Because how do you push the envelope every time if they're just wanting you to repeat, rinse and repeat? So, you know, it becomes a little bit of a vetting thing. I used to just say yes to everything. And now I'm really trying to choose. It's a partnership. It's a marriage. You're, you're in this with this person for years sometimes, or these people, the contractor, the 
architect, the landscaper, the lighting, whoever, who, and the clients and all the, the shit that comes with the clients and the money and the stuff that is hard to, you know, if, especially if they've never done it before. And all of a sudden they're like, wait a minute, how much is this stuff going to cost? Well, it's not cheap. You know, you're building a house in Do you have a percentage of clients that this is their first time doing a ground up build? Or are your clients coming to you that have done this before? You know, it, it's a little bit of both. I think we have a couple clients that, you know, have never done it before. And this is their first rodeo. And it's a lot of, holy crap, how did it... Sticker shock know, over so and over again. Or it's so... <laughs> And by the way, not expensive from us. It's just the contract, like the construction of everything is crazy and all the other stuff, especially if we're building in California, it's a joke. But yeah, I mean, we have a lot of clients, like I would say 20% of the clients have never done it before, but we have a lot of clients that are like their third, fourth home. Some of it, like their third, fourth project with us. So it's, it's a yeah. great relationship. So you were talking um, brick yeah. and mortar. I'm super obsessed with this. I've been begging you for years now to open one in Austin. I'm still crossing my fingers that that will come down the pipeline. Can you talk to us about what you look for in the physical space of a retail store? You mentioned having like really great partnerships with the landlords and the people who own the building, but like in the physical space, what is important to you? Good lighting, great location, good demographics. I think it's, if I'm just really simple and blunt about it and vibes like I want to go to a place that I'm going to enjoy visiting or where other stores around us are equally as inspiring I really like to be around stores that I know are going to kind of get the same clientele that come into shop and it could be down to clothing I mean I we're sort of like we make the joke Emily Current from the great Emily and Merritt they you know we were always like where are you going that's where we're going (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> because so much of our client it like also wears the great or you know whatever. So I like to partner in that respect too. I like to be in places that I know are going to have our our uh, the lovers of shop or open up to new avenues of people who didn't know that we exist and you know So let's talk books cuz we're running out of time. <laughs> and I want to get over the last few questions. Okay. So Made for Living was just yeah. such a breath of fresh air and it was so much more actionable and tangible than most other design coffee table books. What was your priority when differentiating it? And how is the new to be named book going to differ from Made for Living? So Made for Living really was just a almost like an extension of my blog, my blogging years. I wanted to put it all down in writing because I was asked the same question all the time. What's this formula, this formula? How do you do this? How do you do that? Or what do you use? Whatever. And I wanted to put that down on paper. That was really, again, very much winging it. We knew with a concept, we knew what we wanted to do. But me and Kat, who is sort of like my right hand, wrote that entire thing. We did not have a ghostwriter. Of course, I have a editor because I can't spell. She can spell better than I can. But punctuation and all that stuff and like book layout, it was just a very much like a hard crash lesson. We didn't know what we were doing. Um so when I was writing it, it was just giving information to imagery, pretty much. 
So the new book is called Call It Home. That is the official title. And that is more, it is, it's a takeaway, not like made for living. There's less, well, it's not true. There's a lot of tangible information. It's really more about the details. So we're talking about countertops and flooring and what to do and what to look for. It's different than made for living. And there's definitely takeaways. It's a lot more driven about focus on the process and the details that kind of go into it. So the collaboration with architects and contractors and how to do it yourself. I actually also include, which is crazy, but I've been asked so many times, my my house that's kind of all over the map, right? That I actually give a floor plan of, and I give like a detailed why, what, when, what that remodel looked like process about it. So there are some tangible stuff in that. I think for people who've been like, can you just tell me your <laughs> yeah. floor plans? Book yeah. deals are like, yeah. you know, that's like the ultimate for so many designers who just love having that tangible sure. experience of the physical spaces they have designed. What are two things you wish you knew about writing a book before you started? The value in hiring a ghostwriter, actually. So I wrote Call It Home too, also with Kat. We wrote both of them. If and when I do a third book, I will never do it again. It the it is so I wanted my voice to come through, which was the whole purpose of why I thought I could write the whole thing. But it's very labor intensive. And I think sometimes you lose speed a little bit after or not momentum kind of because you're so bogged down with all your other work to go back and make sure that you're, you know, doing the same thing you just did with made for living, but better it, it, you know, I'm not going to lie. It's definitely tough. So I wish knowing, in fact, you're not going to get a prize for not, or for writing it yourself. <laughs> like if you can afford to hire somebody to help you, if that's given to you as an opportunity, I would say that's the reason why that's their full-time job. And then I don't know. The other thing too, is to just focus on the fact that if you photography is a huge one, I think who you hire to present your designs to the world really truly can make or break in my opinion, you know, made for living looked a very specific way. It was written, you know, almost a year and a half before it ever came out. So that's also a very bizarre thing to think about. The same as all these projects that were designed six years ago that you guys are seeing today. Um, It's the same theory. Like that book was done. You have to actually have a manuscript completed, photos done, everything a year before it comes out. So I have a manuscript done of all these projects that are like years past and it won't come out. We won't even see it until October. that is a constant challenge. By the time you're photographing a project that's not going in a book, you've already moved on aesthetically and like you're like over that project. So that does bring me to our final topic before I let you escape from my grasp. (laughs) You have just really become the epitome of. And from, you know, a 30,000 foot level looking down, I definitely see you having a signature style. Now that signature style has matured and evolved over the years. But one thing you've been able to hold on to is that when I see an amber space, I know it's an amber space. So to those listening, how important was and is having a signature style to really getting to that next level in your design career? It's very important because I think if you flop to trends or you flop to what you think is going to get you clients now, there's no longevity in that. 
So I think I take that as a huge compliment that you understand and see the through line. My principles have always been the same. Do I love it? Does it give color? Is it layered? Is it textural? Does it feel lived in? Does it feel comfortable? Those are my principles. I don't waver on those. I never want anyone to walk into a space and feel like it's stagnant or whatever. Even my most modern projects that I've done still feel like me. If the architecture shell is extremely contemporary, it's still my project on the inside. And I want to make sure that I adapt to that. So a signature style, in my opinion, is extremely important. You have to be able to adapt. You have to be able to accept the evolution. I mean, I am also 41 years old. So of course, I'm not designing the same way that I was at 30. So much has changed. I've got a life and a child and a 13 year old actually. And you know, businesses have developed and I know now what I want my spaces to look like as a woman in her 40s. So I kind of design that way as someone who's who has a family and kids and pets and whatever. So I design that way now a little bit more specifically. But yes, there has to be a through line. It has to look like your project. It cannot be an echo of somebody else's or a repeat of somebody else's. It has to be yours. You can be inspired by people. I mean, we all are. I'm so inspired by so many designers that I'll take, you know, like, oh, I love the way that they did that and try to redevelop it to how it would. Yeah, your good friend Jake had mentioned on the show to look at one specific element from a space from another designer and focus on that one single element and not necessarily the whole room and how does that get replicated in another project, but just look at that one sconce or just at that single wall treatment. And I really loved how he put that. How do you help guide your clients to buy into that signature style? I know at this point in your career, people are coming to Amber for an Amber space, but when someone's, you know, more in the infancy and trying to define that signature style, how do you either say no to the projects that aren't going to fit that aesthetic or how do you weave it in to get the clients to buy into it? Well, I think, you know, the clients that we ultimately get to the next step with are the ones that A, are very, they want to be involved in the process to a degree, sort of like what I said earlier on. They want to be hands-on to make sure that it's their space. But I also encourage them to get a vision of how they want to feel in the space, less how they want it to look. So I personally come from that space. I would like to know how I'm going to feel in the final project versus how it's going to look. I think sometimes things look really pretty, but functionally they suck. And that is not how I design. I design for reality. I don't, yes, it looks good on a photograph, sure. But it also has to look good five years from now, 10 years from now, and look timeless and not look like it was done in, you know, 21, 22, 23. I want it to look like it, who who knows? When was it actually designed? Which kind of pulls you back to signature style and making sure that, You're doing things that you truly love, that you love from day one, that you're going to love in 10 years. And we can't always predict it. I mean, I still love the color pink. Can I use it all the time? No. (laughs) When I can, do I? Hell yeah. I have to get clients on board with that. Like, trust me, it's a neutral. Pink is a neutral. You know, and I have to like almost mood it up a little bit now. Like, well, it's not pink. It's terracotta or it's like, you know, salmon or whatever. Um, But no, I've always... you have to get them on board with timelessness. I think that's maybe more the keyword. Timeless and comfortable is how I 
approach a project. With every show, I like to end it with a little sneak peek of news to come. You already gave us news about the next book, which will have been announced by the time this airs. Can you share with us any other secrets you have in store for 2023? Oh my (laughs) God, how long you got? I have a lot going on right now. I've got a lot going on. I think, you know, we're working on some bigger hospitality projects. So cool. Which are really fun fun and stressful. I'm working on a lot of really beautiful out of state, like mountain houses and these really beautiful beach. Like we're just doing so much fun stuff on that project side. We are opening another store for sure. It will be spring 2024 and it will be North California. Not as far as that's all I'm going to (laughs) say. And near a beach. How about that? And then also just working on more, you know, deals really like bigger licensing projects and trying to figure out my next move with, you know, the next category I'm going to get into, whether or not it's furniture or textiles or, or whatever. Well, that is so exciting. We are all here to receive all of it. And as always, I'm so grateful for your time, Amber. You're so generous with it. And I just love catching up with you. Thank you for doing this. I will talk to you soon. It's so good to see you. And thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure. There is something about Amber that makes you feel like you're talking to a cool cousin. An air of mystery and nonchalant charm never ceases to draw me in. Amber, thank you so much for joining us as we wrap up season two of the Interior Collective. We're all sending our biggest congratulations on the new book, Call It Home, which is now available for pre-order and officially drops October 17th. As if there was any chance you weren't already, make sure to follow Amber at Amber Interiors as well as at Shop Amber Interiors on Instagram. As always, you can use code Anastasia15 for 15% off site-wide at Shop Amber Interiors online or in-store. One thing I have really loved was booking a session with Amber on The Expert. You can ask her anything about business. We chatted for a full hour on our call just about logistics. It's not limited to just design questions. If you weren't able to write down everything you heard today, you can find all of the links and images we referenced and other details from this episode of The Interior Collective on our website at idcode.studio forward slash podcast. If you loved this season of the Interior Collective Podcast, please leave us a review. This podcast is entirely a labor of love. It is a free, volunteer-run resource for interior designers. If you have any questions or topics you'd like to hear next season, email me at podcast at idco.studio. Again, that is podcast at idco.studio. Until next season, send me a DM and make sure to stay in touch. I'm Anastasia Casey, and this is the Interior Collective.